here we are, episode eight of the Tim Shell cast. And I am so grateful that you guys are still with us, that you're listening and learning and following and submitting reviews and questions and dialogue. It is so fun. So here we are in today's episode. I am so thrilled. We are interviewing two of my now favorite people on the planet. We have Rabbi Sasso and scholar Amy Jill Levine, and they are two profound Jewish scholars, and I could not be more excited to have them here. So uh, they are talking to us all about the beautiful and amazing concept of Midrash, what it is, why it was used, is it still used, and how the Jewish culture looks at the text. Uh, Tim Shell is written like a midrash, so this is an important episode. It's also near and dear to my heart. One thing you need to know about these two wonderful ladies is they are friends, but they actually work together too. They have produced a series of children's books that aim to have children ask more questions about God instead of people telling them the answers. How good is that? We have a way to rewrite some of the stuff uh, that we learned as kids to the next generation. So we will include all the links to their Amazon pages and title of their books in the show notes. So check those out. And without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode. So growing up in like the evangelical Christian community, I was taught exactly what you said you didn't want in your stories, which was the purpose of the Bible is that somebody, probably a man, will tell you what to think and how to take a passage. We'll just preach at you. And that was the end of it. So I think after I just got, I have all your children's books. My kids love them. And and, um, after I just got your last one, the very big problem, is that what's called the very big problem? Yeah, Um, very big problem. I wrote to Amy and I said, is this for parents or kids? (laughs) It was so um, refreshing for me. I, um, it's about the, you know, Genesis one, two, and three. And I expected the, it to be a um, kind of shaming and preachy because that's just what it's always been given and read. So can we go back there for a second? And I think this will tie in um, Sandy, what, what we were talking about earlier about the concept of Midrash, how Midrash, what is it? And how, does it intersect with the invitation of the sacred text? It isn't just something to be told what to believe, but something to discover and uncover. Can you um, kind of share your thoughts on that a bit? Yes, so the word Midrash itself uh, is a Hebrew word that means to investigate, to inquire, to search out, uh, maybe in a more contemporary way, to use your imagination in, in reading the text, the biblical text. So just to clarify, Midrash is a product and a process. What um, a lot of what I'm doing in writing is the process of Midrash, of reading into the text, using the text as a way to spark my imagination and filling out uh, blank spaces, giving uh, voice to characters that don't have voice, uh, dealing with certain contradictions, philosophical problems. But it is also a product, a collection of material over at least five centuries, the early centuries of the Common Era, in which um, the ancient rabbis read the Bible. And they read the Bible and commented on it. So they created bodies of literature. They created what we call the Talmud, 
which is a combination of the Mishnah and the Gemara, ways of interpreting the text. Alongside that, they also created a body of literature called Midrash. Mm. And there's two ways, this may get a little more complicated than you want to go, but there's two <laughs> forms of Midrash. There's a Midrash which deals with laws, and there's Midrash that deals with narrative material. Mostly what I work with is the narrative Midrash. And so you can go to books with formal collections of all these amazing uh, midrashim, the plural of this, mm -hmm. uh, at, because the rabbis believed there were many ways to interpret the text. Yeah. You know, the text itself is concise, it's short, every word matters, every and matters, every the, it's not put there just because the author wants to add it. It has a meaning. And so in many ways, what Midrash does is search out that meaning. And in doing so, it reads um, the writer's uh, historical situation, philosophical issues back into the story. Yeah, yeah, Can yeah. Can I yeah. ask you real quick, Sandy, how much authority does the Midrash carry? Um, and also a sub question, where do I find it? I mean, do I go to where Amazon? Do, do I go to Amazon? I mean, do yeah, Barnes and Noble browsing through? There are I mean, lots of collections okay, of Midrash, okay? okay? There is, uh, Louis Ginsburg has collections of Midrashim. There are, um, Bialik has a beautiful collection of Midrash. You can just Look it up. You'll find. I think okay, I have one. Sources. The Book of Legends. The yeah, Book of the Legends. Okay. That's excellent. Yeah, okay. Okay. I, okay. Um, I have it. I don't know how to read it. <laughs> like <laughs> I look into it and I'm like, it's so foreign to me. And mm. just, uh, mm. I think, I think it's just grabbing my brain around. Like you saying, um, no, we believe that there's not one way. That's so oh, foreign to my brain. Let me give you an, a simple example. We're yes. always yes, reading the Bible through the eyes of its interpreters. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna ask you, what do you think the fruit is of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Apple. Of course okay. you do. It does it say that in the Bible? No. no it, it just says it's it's a translation from the Latin. We don't have to get into all the details, but you can't imagine the Middle East had a lot of apple trees or orchards. So not really yeah. the kind of fruit. So the Midrash, the rabbis in reading that story go, hmm, I wonder what that fruit was. And you have many different interpretations. Oh, it mm. was wheat. It was a grape. Um, one interpretation that I like a lot is it was a fig tree. Because mm. after all, the fig tree is the only one that is willing to give of itself to clothe Adam and Eve after they eat of the fruit. Mm, and yeah. another explanation, just in case that wasn't enough, is it, it's purposely kept a secret so that you shouldn't blame any fruit. Mm. Oh. <laughs> I like that one. So, I like that one a lot. So, but which one's right? Can you tell me that? Ah, You're missing it, Jeremy. They're all right. <laughs> they're all right. And and that means that when you interpret a text, you can be right, but you can never be fully right. So that rightness is, is always partial because somebody will come up with a different meaning or a different interpretation. The text remains alive. So before we were talking about, Bonnie, you were talking about how you were told this is what this text means and this is what you're supposed to believe. Um, in, in the Jewish culture, it's more like, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? What does somebody else think about this? So when I went to Hebrew school when I was a child, um, 
and this was the case with my teachers, it was also the case with my parents, they would encourage us to ask questions. That was the important thing. And, and eventually you got trained to figure out what might be a good question, what, be, what might not be such a good question. And then somebody would give an answer and somebody else would say, oh, I can see where you get that. That's interesting. How about this? So from the Jewish perspective, the text is always opening up to multiple interpretations. That should make sense to Christians. It does Because in a church context, <laughs> if, even, even if you're really, really conservative, um, you've got a particular viable verse, but the pastor has to give some message to the congregation. And the pastor is not going to, ideally, will not give exactly the same sermon every time the same Bible verse comes on, because that's a good way of losing your job, right? Oh, it's the Good Samaritan. Again, I know what he's going to say. I'm just going to uh, hit record, yeah. <laughs> right. We have, the, we have the answer to this, to this particular question. We have question. the answer. And, right, and right. because we have the answer, it means God is no longer speaking, right? There's nothing, there's nothing else left mm -hmm. to be said. And the text has no meaning for us personally today, and, and, unless we don't tell anybody what we've come up with. So what we're hoping that children will do is use their imagination when they come to the text and figure out what their questions are. And then in, in an environment where you have responsible people listening in, uh, be able to come up with various answers to those questions in a way that will comfort the child or challenge the child uh, or provoke the child to read more. Yeah. That's what so I, let me do. give you uh, an example of this with a child. So I was telling the story of Noah. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the questions that we asked is, is there any part of the story we don't need? And we still have all of the story. And this person, this young girl says, you know, I don't think we need that sacrifice at the end of the story. You know, after the flood, Noah decides to thank, to say, to God, you know, I appreciate what you did and give a sacrifice. And interestingly enough, the teacher said, well, I think that's the way of saying thank you. And mm -hmm. we had this amazing conversation now about gratitude. Now, if we hadn't opened up the text and say, where do you see yourself here? And what part's important and what part isn't important to you? Mm -hmm. We would never have been able to have this deeper conversation. And mm -hmm. I think that's what Midrash does. So you could say in Judaism, the word becomes more words. What mm -hmm. is central is interpretation. There mm -hmm. is not, there are, I mean, you can say many opinions uh, when it comes to narrative, it's very different when it comes to Jewish law, often. Right. Yeah. but we're talking about narrative. There are multiple interpretations because there are multiple people reading the same story from different times and places and situations. Yeah, that makes total sense. I love that. And I like that you said there too about the, the gratitude, because if you had just said, um, no, and we have to show gratitude and make this sort of thing that's like, if you don't do it, you're in trouble or you're a bad person. The The child isn't going to come to a, or the adult, the state of gratitude out of actual gratitude, right? They're going to come to it out of like, well, I have to do this, like obligation or shame yeah, or something. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, a, it's not only a different um, way to approach it. I think it it's, mm. gives birth to a different outcome. That's the importance of stories. Mm -hmm. right. There's, There's a, a difference between preaching and giving you a moral injunction and telling you a story in which you can learn about how you fit into this particular moral question. Mm, That's yeah. precisely why the parables work well is because most of them do not actually come with an explanation. So, you know, you get a parable and then it, it's like, you know, Peter looked at Mary Magdalene and said, what, what do you get out of that? And then the thing <laughs> opens up. And the rabbis say um, in Hebrew, Shiva Panim La Torah, um, the Torah has seven, 70 faces. 
So it's like this beautiful gem, multifaceted gem. And every time you turn it, you get a different perspective and it's shiny and it's bright and it's wonderful. And you know that as soon as you turn it again, it will look different. And that's what stories do. So that even, we, Sandy and I have on occasion gotten emails from parents of kids who have read these books and say, my son really wants to know why, right? Like, what, what's the name of the, what's the lost sheep's name? And, 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 and why, didn't the, why didn't the guy who was looking for the sheep call out, you know, here, Fluffy, mm-hmm. or something? <laughs> uh, uh, and then that, that opens up questions of naming. Um, do all sheep look alike? Well, maybe, but maybe not. you got to look more closely. So kids are raising questions, and I think that's terrific because that's what these books should do. Oh, I love it. Well, and actually, so I'm glad you brought up parables because that was one of the questions I had. So when I I used to think, um, and I think a lot of us, and Jeremy, you can tell me your experience was different, but when they talked about Jesus speaking in parables, it was kind of acted like he was just like this rogue, confusing, mysterious person. But I'm thinking, and maybe he was, but I'm also thinking like, Maybe that's how they taught a lot of times. Like if this is what we're talking about, if this is what um, the culture was around the text, is that true? Like that was part of it, right? Like we're opening it up for questions. We're not pointing to very specific things that we have to teach someone. Exactly. Um, so parables, it's a, the Greek, it's a Greek term. Power is like parallel or paradox. It means you put something side by side. And balo means to cast or to throw. So you throw two things next to each other. And in that juxtaposition, like the kingdom of heaven is like, um, well, so it also is the kingdom of heaven is not like, so it's not a one-to-one correspondence. But you begin to start thinking. There's an old line about parables that they're designed to tease the mind into active imagination. Um, it's a common genre at the time. Um, it's not dissimilar to Aesop's fables. Uh, it's not dissimilar to what we have in wisdom literature, uh, particularly wisdom literature that's a little bit more edgy, um, like Ecclesiastes or Job, which is very edgy. Um, we can think of parables as designed to, to take us out of our comfort zones and to help us try to see the world in some other way. So if you want to shake somebody up or engage imagination and take us out of the status quo, um, tell a good story and let people start talking about it. And then they begin to see things that they had not seen before and think about things that they had not thought about. So it's a common genre. Uh, it morphs into some of the midrashim, which function, uh, as Sandy mentioned, function as parables. Um, but we don't have to turn them into some like allegories, right? If you have a guy who's a landowner, that's not necessarily God. That could be just a real landowner. Yeah. Um, and if you have a widow, that could be just a real widow yeah. uh, who might not be behaving in a way that you think widows should behave. Yeah. Um, so parables also function by humor. Some of them are very funny um, or by exaggeration or by having characters do things that characters don't normally do. And say, what's, what's going on here? And as soon as you ask that question, then the answers start pouring out. What keeps you from going over the deep end and coming up with something that's really pretty wacky um, is you've got the rest of the gospel to help you here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And you know something about Jesus and you can try to figure out, well, what would he say and is that going too far? So actually, you know, AJ mentions humor and we worked really hard in our children's stories as we retold these parables to capture some of that humor because mm-hmm. the story doesn't have to be, 
I mean, it's serious, but it should have a sense of humor. And mm -hmm. that's what I loved about, you know, our writing these stories. They, they could make you laugh. They do. They're funny. And you enjoy them. So you want to constantly read them and find, uh, find what it might mean to you. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. And it right. But the other thing there is that it helps kids with the Bible, because if they think of the Bible as like so serious, and, you know, it's reverential and it's up there on the pulpit with, you know, gold leaf or something. They're not going to play with it and they're not going to enjoy it. Yeah. And things like, oh, it's Bible time again. Oh, <laughs> um, but but if you think of this, granted, not the entire Bible is not laugh a minute. I mean, there are some really quite difficult passages <laughs> there, but there's a lot that's just it's funny and it's imaginative. Um, and it's designed to draw people in because part of its entertainment and entertainment and ethics are not mutually exclusive. So get the kids interested, but also get the kids amused. And yeah. they'll, be, they'll be more likely to continue their reading. So the I love word that. I like that you used, AJ, is play. Yeah. Uh, because uh, in many ways, Midrash is sort of playing with the story. We're, mm -hmm. we're playing. We're using our imagination. We're wondering what so-and-so might have said. Uh, we're, you know, we're uh, giving a voice to an animal. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, yeah. why not? Why can't animals talk? Isn't that fun? Yeah. That's a whole different way of working. It's not working with the text. It's playing with the text. And that's yeah. what's so much fun about it. Yeah, no, I love it. And, you know, I'm when you guys, the last one that I um, bought and read to my kids about the very big problem, I won't give it away for people that want to read it. But when it gets to the, the, the humans and to the kids and what they're what they're saying and doing, my kids just cracked up. I mean, they were just <laughs> laughing so hard and they were cracking up and we were all laughing. And then... I don't know, two weeks later or something, something happened. And I said to my son, you know, oh, I love you, buddy, or whatever. And then my daughter, who's three, all just out of nowhere, she goes, I love you more. I love you more. <laughs> Remember that book? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> it was so funny, but it was a moment where I'm like, oh, that stuck with you. That was a, that stuck with you. And it was, it was just, it was really neat. So you guys, you guys accomplish it very well. You guys are, they're wonderful, wonderful books. So can I add something to that? You know, when you read stories to children, um, those stories stay with them and they call them up when they need them, mm. you know, when it has to do with the situation. So I know I've read stories to kids a lot and I'm going, hmm, I don't know that they're actually listening. And mm. then years later, I mean, I remember years later, somebody would call me and says, you remember that story you told me? That really means something to me now. Mm -hmm. So it's just sharing lots of stories and you never know which one's going to stick yeah. and which one's going to be meaningful later on. Mm -hmm. Agreed. And by and the way, children's stories are also for adults. Yes, I read them all that half the time. I'm like, let's read this. I think we all need to hear it. I think I pulled out the one um, who is my neighbor. Mm -hmm. uh, just if I had it already, but when all the riots were happening and there was so much injustice. And so I, I needed to read it as much as the kids did. And it was so, it was, it was very meaningful to me. So yeah. We had really lots good. of fun with that one. It was a good Creating one. Creating characters from colors. We just had so much fun. Yeah, it was, it was a, it's a really good one. Can I bring us back to something that AJ said that I think um, might have gotten missed by some of our listeners or, you know, even by me in some ways? You said the parables were not, uh, you know, they're not a Christian thing necessarily in their origin. In my tradition, you know, parables, well, that's, that's ours. You know what I mean? And, <laughs> um, and so 
and I wanted you to kind of share with us a little bit in the writing of the book Tim Shell, the the translation that Bonnie did, and, and I was I edited. Um, we were influenced, or I was, by your work, the uh, the short stories of, of Jesus. Um, and part of that was understanding some of the damaging ways that we see the Jewish religion, and particularly you know the way that it's expressed in the New Testament. Can you help unpack that just a little bit for us? I know that that's something you care deeply about. Yeah, I do. Thanks for the question. Um, parables as a genre uh, are not unique to Christianity, but when it comes to interpreting the parables that we have in the Gospels, uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because there are no parable, technical parables in John, um, so often throughout church history, starting with the church fathers and moving up to last Sunday, um, a, a number of pastors or teachers will, will go out of their way to make Judaism look bad in order to make Jesus look good. Mm. So that, for example, in the story of the prodigal son, the standard reading is, oh, Jewish fathers, you know, when the, when the problem comes back, the father would have sent him off to go work for 25 years and asked him what laws he broke and, and would have been shamed by him. And therefore, um, Jesus is inventing this new and different God who actually cares about us and loves us. Mm. And that is such a mischaracterization of early Judaism. Mm. Saying that, you know, of course they would have expected the father to welcome the kid back. Um, if, 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 if a fellow can leave 99 sheep to go after the one, and if a woman can, can look night and day and sweep her house for a coin, of course the dad is going to go look for, for that prodigal and welcome him back. The punch of the parable is the older brother. And then the Christian church comes in and says, oh, the, the older brother, the Pharisee, the negative people and all that. No, this is an older brother um, who, after his dad decides to throw a party, doesn't bother to invite him. And he has to ask the, the local slave, which is also notable. He has to say, say to a slave who's there, why do I hear the sound of music and dancing? And the slave goes, oh, you know, your brother came back and dad, dad's making barbecue. This is not a story about evil Pharisees and, and um, legalistic Judaism. It's, it's on its basis a story about an older brother who says there was a dad who had two sons and, and he couldn't bother to look for me. And then how do you repair that? Um, so what, what I find people doing frequently is making Judaism look bad in order to make Jesus look good. And that's unfortunate because, look, I'm not a Christian and I think Jesus is fabulous. And I don't need to make Judaism look bad in order to make him look good. Um, I put him in his Jewish context, which actually makes him look better because now I know what he's trying to get across and what people at the time would have been hearing him say. Yeah. But with rivalry. <sighs> Are there any other like Pharisee teachings um, that we might recognize in as teachings of Christ? Can, you know what I mean by that question? Like uh, that, that school of thought at the time, um, you know, where we as, and I have no problem attributing them to Jesus. He taught them as well. But, but what, what might, how, can you couch him in some of that a little bit for me where there are things possibly that, that we could point to? Um, so as you mentioned, the only Pharisee from whom we have written records is Paul of Tarsus. Um, and Paul never gives up his being. He's always a Pharisee. He's just a Pharisee who happens to believe that the Messiah has come and that it's his job to go evangelize the, the Gentile world or the pagan world. Um, he doesn't, when he tells his followers, don't follow Torah, don't be circumcised, for example, um, he's, he's writing to Gentiles. He's not writing to Jews. In the epistle to the Philippians, he talks about how proud he was that he was a Pharisee because that gives him a whole lot of cachet. Um, he said, in light of Christ, it's worth nothing, but in light of Christ, nothing is worth anything else. Um, Pharisees are lay leaders. Um, they, some of them may be among the elite. Most of them were not. 
Um, they're interested in uh, taking the holiness that one finds in the temple and bringing it out to the population at large, which is a more egalitarian move. Beautiful. I, um, if, if we're all a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, which we already have in the scriptures of Israel, and it gets picked up in the New Testament in First Peter, um, then, then why should only the priests be engaged in holiness practices? Um, Pharisaic interpretation tends to be very, very liberal. Um, it tends to be actually fairly innovative. Um, Jesus is the more conservative one. Pharisees talk about how you can get divorced. Jesus says you can't get divorced. That's the more conservative side. Um, when Pharisees talk about, you know, you wash the outside of the cup, you don't have to deal with the whole thing. They're saying, because we're doing this in a kind of symbolic manner, and, and if you're talking about the whole thing, then you're missing the symbolism. Um, Jesus debates with Pharisees. Of course, they're, they're both speaking to the same audience. They're speaking to the people of Israel generally construed. Um, the reason part of this is so, so vituperative is because there's so much that they share, right? Um, it, it, the struggle between people who, who actually are invested in the same things, but think you should go about it differently, it's, it's like contemporary American politics, and sometimes the language can get quite heated. But at the end of the day, we're all still Americans, and that's where our loyalty lies, and we all have a concern for the Constitution, but we'll debate how best to interpret it. Yeah. So uh, what is troubling is when the word Pharisee, which is even used today in journalism, is used in a negative light because Jews see themselves as inheritors of the Pharisaic tradition because, as AJ said, it was a more progressive tradition. It believed that you did not have to take the Bible literally because there were those at the time, you know, the Sadducees who believed that you did take it literally. And the Pharisees came along and said, oh, no, 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 you don't have to do that. You, you can interpret that. Uh, and we are Jews today, uh, Jews are Jews today, because we have inherited that tradition of interpretation. Mm. So what has happened today is even in modern writing, we're not even writing about the Bible, right? We're just writing. We use the word Pharisee as a negative term, and, mm. and that's troubling. Mm. And I also, I have to say one more thing about aging, you know, so I didn't know these parables all that much. I mean, I had read them, you know, it's part of my religious education. But when I really delved into them to write this children's book, I said, I love them. These are great. So, you know, why shouldn't the, Jew the Jewish community it's kind of stayed away from it because it was always interpreted as, well, you're bad and we're good. So why would I care to read that story? So, I mean, to bring it uh, to a point where we are together and celebrating the same uh, moral concerns, ethical concerns, it just brings those stories to all of us. Um, and at times the correction is helpful. So ideally this podcast will be helpful. Uh, a year ago, May, May 2019, there was a major conference in Rome on who are the Pharisees and what do we know? And it brought together international experts on uh, New Testament, on Josephus, on the Dead Sea Scrolls, on uh, the Talmud that, that Sandy mentioned, as well as the reception history. How, how did Luther understand the Pharisees? How did contemporary Jews understand the Pharisees? How do Pharisees show up in children's books? And so on. Um, and we actually got an audience with the Pope. Um, and the, the Pope then posted his own, his address to, to us for this audience. It's now on the Vatican website. And, and the Pope said, do not use Pharisees as negative exemplars because you don't need to do that. And it's disrespectful. So figure out some other way of, of how to address this material. And the papers from that conference, I'm right now in the process of editing them. 
so sometime in early 2021, ideally, we will have this this fulsome, quite good study. What are the experts wait. saying today? I can't wait for that. Can can you and and what part of my follow up question was was is is and you kind of you said it a little bit, Sandy. But what does a how does a modern Jewish person um, feel about the New Testament? Because when I think about it, it 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 slights it, it when I if and when probably never you know it started to break my heart as I as I kind of thought about that. But how do you, how does how do they how do they feel? How can you help us get into that mindset in in that in, in some way possibly? You're you're both laughing because there's obviously something going on there. <laughs> Well, my experience is that the average Jew doesn't know the New Testament. <laughs> I mean, but I would say when I would tell uh, friends of mine who are Christian, by the way, I'm writing the story of the, you know, what is called the prodigal son, or I'm telling mustard seed. I said, so you know that they go, huh? <laughs> so, I mean, I think there's a lack of uh, literacy in any biblical studies as, as a whole. Um, I mean, I don't know what you, your experience is, Edgy, but I'm, I'm saying, well, I'm going to tell this story. They go, what? I never heard of that story. That's in the Bible? You know, so I think there's, I think because the stories haven't been shared in an open way, but more as a preach, preaching way, people haven't felt, well, these are really stories that I, I want to engage with. So mm -hmm. there is a lot of that. And if you look, by the way, at some Sunday school sites on online, which I did to see how Pharisees are depicted. Oh my God, it's awful. Oh, I bet. I mean, it's just awful. The little songs that say horrible things about the Pharisees. I mean, mm. it's just awful. So it's so important yeah. to um, have this new literature out there that helps recognize that we are all in this together, that Jesus mm -hmm. was a Pharisee and we have many of the same teachings and we learn from one another at the same time. I'm so happy that you um, are educating us on that because um, it's these little microaggressions that make a big deal. And I don't think a lot of people know. Um, I sit with a, a spiritual director who is also a rabbi. His name is um, Rabbi Nahum Ward-Lev. I don't know if you know him. Uh, he's also a book writer, so I thought maybe you'd cross paths. But um, he had sent me a document from an organization, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's a, a Jewish organization called If Not Now. Mm -hmm. And it was um, many ways that uh, white supremacy culture shows up in our workplaces, in language, and then anecdotes, how we can come together and change the landscape and change the language. Um, so this conversation is reminding me of that because I'm just so grateful you shared that. I know that's vulnerable and hard to talk about, and I'm super grateful so that we can be part of making that a change and not using those words in a negative light. In talking with, with Jewish groups about the parables, and, and I've done that with a number of Jewish groups, um, not only here, but in England and South Africa and Australia, um, uh, they think the parables are anti-Jewish. So they've heard mm. the Good Samaritan say, oh, that's just an anti-Jewish parable. Mm. And it's been certainly interpreted that way a yeah. number of times. Um, or they're convinced that the entire New Testament is just, it, it, it's the, it's the run-up to Mein Kampf, right? It's, it's, it's an anti-Jewish screed. Um, and I say, have you ever read it? No. You know, why, why would I read this anti-Jewish book? Um, so it seems to me, and this is the case that I make to fellow Jews. Um, first of all, it's part of, it's part of world history. It's, it's hard to understand Rembrandt unless you know the parable of the prodigal son, because his, his depiction of it is just so striking. Um, 
uh, so it, the Good Samaritan comes up in discourse all the time. We have Good Samaritan hospitals. You might want to know what the parable is about. Mm -hmm. um, at, at the same time, as a minority group living within a dominant Christian society, um, if, if we Jews want Christians to appreciate us on, on terms that we can recognize, which means knowing something more about Judaism than Hanukkah, which is, mm -hmm. which is not a, a secondary Christmas thing. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe something about the Holocaust and maybe something about the state of Israel, but to, to know our stories and to know how we function, then I think we owe Christians the same respect. Because too often in the popular culture, Christianity is Santa, you know, and presents and, and something about a bunny. Um, <laughs> uh, We're and, all and, a little confused about how that right, came. <laughs> and, and the Jews who killed Jesus, right? Yeah. So uh, to be able to make the, the appropriate corrections, uh, to, to respect our neighbors, then we might want to read the New Testament and then talk with our neighbors about how they understand it. In the same way, I would like my Christian friends to say to me, how do you understand some of those difficult passages in the scriptures that we share so we don't wind up with one of those God of, God of wrath in the Old Testament, God of love in the New Testament, which is just wrong nine ways to Sunday, so that we actually by reading each other's literature and then talking with each other about how we understand it, we can put in the corrections. Jews reading the New Testament can recover part of our own history. We can understand where some of those anti-Jewish attitudes came from, and we can correct that as well. And we become better neighbors. Yeah, mm, that's so good. I would love, I didn't send this over in some of the questions, so I hope it's not too much of a curveball, but I would love from both of you when you're talking about part of your stories. So Genesis is obviously a part of the Torah. And, um, I, something that is a, a personal journey for me as of lately. Um, well, if I thought I would be over it in like a month, but I'm just I'm still sitting here in the journey like six months later, um, is I was discussing with my spiritual director and then just in the text and then reading some, um, Jewish commentaries and, um, my book of legends when I can figure out how to do it. Um, but about Genesis three. And so this is why I was so fascinated, interested in your book about the very big problem in, obviously, as you know, in, in Christianity, it's the fall, right? It's like, uh, Eve sinned and then everybody now has fallen and sinful. And then I read later, it was like the word sin isn't even there. It's actually, right, it first... only shows up in the next chapter. Yeah. With Cain and Abel. Right. That's and... the first sin killing your brother. Yes. So can we just like lay that out there and discuss that because I was reading this the other day and it was like the idea of the fall didn't even come in until Plato had his own idea. And then Augustine wrote it sort of into the doctrine and that shifted it and that changed the whole thing. And I think that we were, we're really missing something because I think most Christians are reading the parables, the teachings of Jesus, whatever, thinking of the fall right? Thinking of this like concept that wasn't even there when he was alive and et cetera. So um, I don't know. I would just love to hear how the Jewish faith interprets that um, Genesis three. And, and if you have any thoughts on like how it got added in. Well, I'm, I'll say a few words, you know, often the way in which women are depicted in the Bible, Eve <laughs> included, beginning with Eve, um, uh, is really a view of women from the point of view of the men who wrote the story. You really don't have women's voices in the Bible. And part of what has happened in the creation of Midrash, which has uh, increased significantly in the last 50 years, is contemporary Midrash by women writers who want to give women a voice and want to yeah. give Eve a voice. 
Um, one way in which um, I interpret the Eve story, it's not really so much a fall. It's the begin, which doesn't even say fall. There's, yeah. you know, she eats of the tree of the knowledge of fruit and evil, uh, of good and evil, um, and then this is what occurs. It's, it's in many ways more of a little bit of an origin story. Okay, how did you get pain in, in childbirth? Mm. Now, how come you have to till the earth? Well, how do we understand that? But it is also the beginning of history. Mm. Without eating eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then of course, you know, it's one of these central myths. It's not meant to be a factual event. <laughs> um, is that's how history begins. Mm. Actually, that's how procreation begins. So why can't you eat from the tree of life? Of, uh, why can't you eat from the tree of life after you eat from the tree of knowledge? Yeah, now you know how to, to procreate and we can't keep procreating and have eternal life or there's gonna be a population explosion. We now, we don't have individual immortality, we have generational immortality. Mm. And we begin to make history and to create. So it is in many ways a positive story mm. uh, about how you begin to uh, be a partner with God in the process of creation. Mm. Yeah, that yeah, partnership cool. is really important. So it's it's not as if God says, "Well, okay, I'm done with you, and now it's it's sort of negative yardage just until we get up to the Christ, and and everything is like really bad," um, because when they leave Eden, God goes with them right, and protects them. So that um, the old line is, "It's not an original sin; it's an original opportunity." Right? Mm. Now, what are you gonna do? Um, at the risk of self promotion, but why not? No, yes, seriously, do, everybody buy all their books right now. Promote <laughs> and, away. <laughs> and we'll be sure to have links for it and yeah. everything. So, uh, yeah. My friend Mark Brettler, with whom I co-edited the Jewish Annotated New Testament, um, he and I have just completed a volume that will be out in October called The Bible With and Without Jesus. And we have an entire chapter on Genesis 3 to say, how has the Christian church traditionally read this text? Um, how was it read at the time of Jesus? You know, what did the Dead Sea Scrolls say? What, what do the Jewish historians of the time say? And then we go look at Midrashic material that Sandy mentioned before. What did the rabbis say? And, how, and now what do we do with this? Now that we've got various different readings so that we can see in this volume how the, the creation stories, the Adam and Eve stories, um, open up the story of Jonah, open up to multiple interpretations. And, and we don't have to say it's a zero-sum game because when you're dealing with literature, you can have mutually exclusive readings and they, the, the text can bear them both. Yes. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I would say, I would just add, it's not, there isn't in Judaism well, predominantly original sin. There is more of original virtue. You are born, in a sense, with a clean slate created in the image of God. Then what you do determines uh, whether yeah. you're sinful or virtuous. It's your actions that, that mm -hmm. determine that. It's so funny because my son, who I've mentioned before, he he's three now. He just turned three. And even the other day, as I was watching it, I was almost like, he's starting to eat of uh, the fruit of, of, you know, of the original fruit, but not in a, I wasn't thinking it in a bad way. You know what I mean? It was, it was this kind of beautiful thing where his consciousness is, is, is becoming, it's, it's broadening, you know, and, and to hear you guys say to, that this was an original opportunity and not just that, like, and it's where God follows him into this journey, you know, out east of Eden, out of, out of, into exile or whatever it is. Um, it's beautiful. And, and it's such a lost thing. And one of the things that I've always felt is like I've worked with young people with disabilities. I work with children and things like that. And and all these big qu topics and questions um, 
I've always thought if you can't, if it doesn't make sense to a child, <laughs> then it sh- then it doesn't make sense to anyone. You know, if it doesn't make sense to, so maybe hopefully to, 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 to kind of close this off, how can we intentionally, how do you guys, what's, what's your advice to help us to move these things? Is that important? How do, how do we, how do we do that? And how do we kind of on, in some ways elevate that, um, as, as a, as an important aspect of what we do as, as ministers and teachers and uh, moms and dads and things like that? So I would say, have a conversation. I think we're so afraid of a conversation that doesn't have clear answers. I mean, when you ask questions about God and life's meaning and purpose, you can Google those, you know. Um, I did try Siri once and I asked her the meaning of life and she told me chocolate and I was totally (laughs) delighted at that. But, you know, these are open-ended questions and you don't have to have answers because there isn't one answer. Like if, if you, uh, if a child asks you a, a question that you don't think you know the answer to, just say, you know, that's a really big question. And I've been thinking about it as well. And lots of people have thought about it. Mm. I would like to think about it together. Mm. Yeah. You know, there's, uh, they say that um, experts built the Titanic and an amateur built the ark. Mm. Uh, don't trust experts. You don't have to be an expert. You just have to want to engage in the conversation. Mm. I was going to go back since, uh, if we can do a little self-promotion, that I have a, another book on uh, for children on Midrash about creation, and it's the story of the light of the first day of creation. Uh, what's it called? It's called Creation's First Light. (laughs) And it's about um, this special light that's different from the sun and the moon, right? Mm -hmm. That comes the first day. And where is it? And where do we find it? And I talk about finding it in questions, in memories, Mm -hmm. in a hug, and inside you. You So, you know, you can take these stories and open them up in many ways. Like, okay, one more book. I have another book, which is, um, the story of uh, Noah's wife, mm. who has a name and who I give a story to. So that's what's so fascinating about using the midrashic process and style. It sort of opens up the story and lets you talk. Yeah. It lets you have a conversation that began generations ago mm-hmm. and you're continuing it. It's yeah. not over. You know, you don't hang up the phone. (laughs) You are continuing the conversation. How wonderful is that? Mm, I love that. That's amazing. Yep. Encourage your kids when you're reading. What questions do you have? Or here's a question I have. What do you think? Because that shows that the the, the parent or the caregiver is not like the big know-it-all. But we're in this together. And if you get an answer that's that's morally problematic or prejudiced, well, could we read the text this way? Because that seems to be nicer. Um, don't set up enemies. Um, try to figure out what connects you rather than emphasize just the divisions, but also celebrate your distinctions as well. And give the kids a, a type of freedom that allows them, even as a three-year-old, uh, a child can develop personal conclusions, which and it's those conclusions that will stay with the child. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Gosh, thank you guys so much for being here. And um, your, I just think your work is so important. I have to, I have to tell you, like we all have these, like Jeremy and I always talk about, like we both of us went through like a big deconstruction, like 
faith crisis, like what's happening. And we both are like, gosh, we want a different route for our children. And your books, they have already helped my kids so much and helped me so much. And it's just, um, it's just beautiful. I have to tell you, I'm a spiritual director as well. And every single client I've ever seen, every single one, hundred percent across the board, has we've gotten to a spot in our direction and they have said, well, I can't do that because, you know, I'm inherently a bad person. And it takes Mm -hmm. such a peeling back to learn, to relearn the, like you said, born with this virtue and this goodness and this beauty. And so um, I love that you're giving resources now to heal that wound in adults, but also to start a brand new path in kids so that this next generation coming up has just a different view of themselves and of each other. So I just thank you so much. You guys are amazing. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. And thanks for being here. Yes, so much. Yes.